This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant, temporarily based in East Hampton, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Center, <laughs> the Center for Cyberethics is the producer of the Cybertraps podcast, although it's really just the two of us eating chat. <laughs> In any case, the Center for Cyberethics is an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Well, this episode and the next few episodes of the podcast are going to be about our time in at the PPI conference in Boise, Idaho. So as we are chatting here, I hope you enjoy it and enjoy the people that we were able to talk with. This was the Professional Practices Institute put on by the National Association of State Directors of Teacher and Educator Certification, and this is a similar um, conference that Fred and I went to last year in Oklahoma City as well. So hope you enjoy this and the following episodes that are going to be like it. Since we were recording in a public place, there are some times where the background noise gets a little much, but hopefully we've done enough to take care of that and it's not too annoying. And uh, thanks for your patience with that.
So will you start by telling us your name and your role? I'm Cassie Trueblood. I work for the Kentucky Education Professional Standards Board. I serve as counsel to the EPSB. Um, I used to work in the legal division prosecuting cases and then overseeing that. Now I sit with the board when they make those determinations. Um, so I, I still hear those cases just in a different role. And then I also advise in our office on kind of everything around certification and educator preparation. So not not focused solely on the misconduct anymore, which is nice. I was going to say, that must be a bit of a relief. <laughs> it, you know, it, it is in some instances, but then there's just so much that you have to know and keep track of. But it's nice to take a break from reading about all the bad stuff all the time. Yeah. How many cases would you say you go through uh, each year in Kentucky? Um... You know, I really, especially being here, I should know that better <laughs> um, on the top of my head. Uh, we have our, our attorneys here who actually do the report, and they could give that answer to you a little better. But our board meets six times a year, and they review over 100 cases at each meeting. But sometimes they will review a case multiple times in a year. They can defer it, you know, or they'll send it to an attorney, and then it comes back with a recommendation for charges or for an agreed order. But we are different from a lot of other states in what we can take action for. Our jurisdiction is very broad. We have a statute that sets out multiple things, anywhere from neglect of duty um, all the way up to the sexual sexual misconduct cases or, or criminal convictions, whereas you'll hear from other states that really only have the ability if there's a criminal conviction. So you've been doing this for a while now, when you combine the two roles that you mentioned, right? Yeah, I started with the EPSB. It was my first official job out of <laughs> law school um, in 2010. So. Okay, so almost 13 years then. And one of the things I love asking guests, because we get such great answers we to do. this, is in the course of your career, how would you characterize the changes in technology that you've seen and the impact that it's had on educators? It does just continue to change. You know, in 2010, I'm fresh out of law school, 25, I think I know some things, and, you know, I, I can do stuff with my technology. Now I feel more like how I felt about my parents or even my grandparents in some situations where, you know, Fred, you'll mention these apps, and I'm like, what, what is that? Who would do that? Why do you... So it, it's a little harder to relate, I guess, now. Um, but you do see so many of these teachers now that were students that were using social media as students, whereas that, that wasn't the case for me. I think Facebook came out during probably when I was in college. I know there was MySpace, but very few of us had that. Yeah, I think if I recall correctly, Facebook went global or global access around 2009. I think is correct. That's, I was thinking it, somewhere it, it, around it opened up to high schools first in 2006, 2007, and then Zuckerberg realized there was a much bigger potential audience. Yeah, it's just, it's different when you have those people that grew up with social media mm. that are just so ingrained in it um, and use it every day for everything that they're now teaching. Well, excuse me, but, but that actually, I think, is such a great topic to expand upon. So you've got these teachers that are transitioning their role, but their use of social media may not necessarily change. So w what can you tell us that Kentucky is doing to help them 
understand that they've got a new role. Helping them to understand boundaries and how to set boundaries or just even thinking about that <laughs> sometimes, you know, because yeah. you just don't. And especially if you're in a small community that you grew up in and now you're the teacher there as well having to understand that as a teacher you are you're the adult now you're the even if you're 23 or 24 yes and so you have to set those boundaries not only to protect the children but also to protect yourself you do have a right to a personal life but you want to keep that personal and private and not share it with all of your students we do have a code of ethics that is again a code of conduct and it has been around for quite some time And then with the model code of ethics, we have endorsed that for use by our educator preparation programs and districts to use it as a training model. We do offer trainings from our attorneys on ethics and sure. conduct and well I've had the chance to come down you know, yes. you guys do great programs so. And so well thank you we we try it's not always as well received from the state level attorneys that can take your license as it can be when you know it's somebody like you or Troy um, when it's that they have somebody to relate to that's less threatening sure so we do try that to makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's like the neighbor suggesting something that you won't do if your parents suggest it. Oh, absolutely. Because a very different dynamic. (laughs) Yeah. And so we do try to make those resources available with working either the Kentucky Association of State or Kentucky Association of School Administrators. Yes, they have some conferences that they put on. So we, you know, Fred has come and spoken with that. So Troy's doing a lot of work with them. And then we do continue to just let it be known to our districts and to our ed prep programs that these training options are out there and let's utilize them so that we're not in the situation of exacerbating a shortage because we're having to take licenses because we didn't help these teachers enough on the front end. Yeah. And that's interesting too. I know Jethro, you've talked a lot about ways to resolve the teacher shortage and I hadn't really thought about the fact that the disciplinary process plays into that. It's interesting. Yesterday at lunch I think I was talking to someone from Wyoming and he said they have 24,000 educators licensed in the state of Wyoming but only 8,000 teaching positions in the state so they have three times as many licensed people but those people are not necessarily active or currently teaching or interested even in teaching and so you may have this large number of people that could possibly teach but then you don't have the access to them because one, you are taking licenses away from people or they've moved states or whatever the case may be. So even I thought that was really interesting and something that I hadn't ever thought about. It never that, would have occurred to me that I you know. have an excess number of licensors you know, running around. But yeah. Well, and that sometimes is something that you deal with when talking about the shortage and trying to make people understand that yes, there is a shortage, But sometimes you do have this large number of certified people, but that doesn't mean you have a large number of people who are willing to Mm -hmm. be teachers and be in the classroom. Right, different calculation. Well, the other thing I think that's interesting in the comments you were just making is that Kentucky is similar to a number of the other states I've been to in that it has these pockets of very small communities. And the role of social media in these small communities is very different than 
for instance, in Brooklyn, where I live. So, you know, I will have people come up to me when I go out to lecture, and they'll say, what are you talking about? There's 200 people in this community. We're all either on social media or connected to each other in various ways. And now you're telling me that when a child I literally saw being born is going through school, I can't be their friend on social media. And more often than not, my response is, yeah, that is exactly what I'm telling you. Probably not in your best interest. Right, right. Um. <laughs> you know, it's one thing if you if you know their home life because you're friends with the family and there are certain ways of behaving or ways of understanding that relationship, but it changes online. And if you're seeing things about your students, even if they're good friends online, like by way of example, one of my nieces is on TikTok and has gone to school in South Carolina. And I am really on the verge of dropping her as a TikTok <laughs> friend because I don't want to see how she's integrating herself into life in South Carolina. Like, it's just too much information. You know, if her mother wants yes. to do it, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think you get into the whole generational differences. Well, there's of that. that. <laughs> and just kind of in, in general... I say it's when you get older, you think more about, do I really want to share that? Is that something that I, I want in a video that is out there that somebody can use against me later? Whereas when you're young, you just think, oh, this is funny. I'm, I'm going to put this out there. And it's like, really? Have you thought that all the way through? <laughs> yeah. and, and so sometimes as a teacher, do you want to be exposed to that? Do you want to see that about those students that you're then going to have to sit there in class with? Or sit beside at Thanksgiving. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have an interesting story about that. So as a school principal, I had to do investigations. And I think I've said this on the podcast before, but maybe not. So one of the things that I had to do was look through students' phones to see what was going on. And uh, there was a student that I was going to have babysit my kids. And once I saw what, and this was in a small community, and like, the only people who were available to babysit go to my school. So like, I didn't have many options. Okay. So, so I was going to have her babysit my kids. And then I read through the text messages and I was like, now I do not want this girl around my kids. Never would have expected her to say any of those things that she said in the text thread. Never would have expected her to suggest what she was suggesting in the text thread. And I was just blown away at how different she was virtually than she was in person. And uh, just to, to highlight one aspect that's relatively benign, the language that she was using was vulgar and crass and not something I want my kids to be around. I had never heard her say any of those things. Not that I would think that she would say any of those things while she's babysitting my kids, but at the same time, because I now know this, I'm like, I can't have her babysitting my kids because I can't I can't trust that she's not going to do that, even though she's given me no reason to think that she's not going to. But those are the things that, like, I wish I would have never known that about her because I couldn't help but be disappointed in who, how she was behaving when people weren't around compared to how she was behaving when people were around. Well, that, though, ties into the presentation from this morning in terms of the personalities that people put on, oftentimes on social media or in some kind of virtual environment. And I think that this is one of the things that you must grapple with is this boundary issue of how people act. Are they 
Is there a risk that how they behave online will spill over into the classroom? You know, I think people are very different virtually than they are in real life. Like when you have to sit and look somebody in the face, you just act different than the keyboard warriors. Um, <laughs> right, or the trolls or whatever. Yeah, the very few people really are creating this second life where they're themselves doing something a little bit different virtually. Um, well, isn't that the great opportunity in a way? Because we like to reinvent ourselves. <laughs> I mean, you can also argue a lot of it's false advertising. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. I mean, if I, if I see another glorious cruise photo from some of my friends on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, that, it's very easy to get sucked into that seeing, well, how can they travel all the time? How did they get to do that? Why am I in the office today? And, um, yes. But no, when you were this morning, when you had the slide about Second Life, it made me think I'm an office fan. Yes, uh, yes. Dwight, when he created his Second Life, but he was the same person. He was a salesman in Second Life as well. Um, so that, that's not your common scenario, obviously. No, but that was such a wonderful play. I remember that. that's just an utter lack of imagination <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, or or he's very content with his life a beet farmer and a and a paper salesman i mean and this is why we team up so well he's vastly less cynical than <laughs> I was say, I that was definitely more positive than yeah <laughs> than i tend to be with it as well yeah but yeah i mean you see now the teachers that are being reported because of only fans Sure. And being on OnlyFans and how is that affecting their classroom? One of the things that we have in our code of ethics is that you, uh, any certified educator has a responsibility to uphold the dignity and integrity of the profession. That can encompass quite a bit, but sometimes we get into things on OnlyFans or other social media platforms that are not dignified. Well, it's so funny that you use that particular example because over breakfast I was talking with a crew from another state and they were asking me about OnlyFans because they weren't really up to speed on it, which is to their credit. And so they were dealing with a case where the teacher's activity on OnlyFans came to light because she's being prosecuted for tax evasion. And she has apparently, allegedly, because it hasn't gone through, allegedly did not pay taxes on, you know, $350,000 worth of money. So there's, put, let's put a pin in the fact that educators can make so much money if they choose to go that way. But then there is this kind of mole, mole, role model, sort of public figure aspect of teaching that a lot of educators lose sight of. Or think that they don't have to live up to because they're trying to draw a very strict line between their professional and their personal, not realizing that online content makes that bleed. Yes, if you are doing these things online, your students are going to find them <laughs> at some point. Um, and it doesn't matter what age the students are, you know, the high schoolers are a little, little craftier, they're, they're able to find it quicker, but even your elementary students, they're out there, they, they know what it is and it gets to the parents and then it comes back to, I don't have to deal with things on the district level side, I'm sure that was a lot of fun as a, a principal, but it becomes this nightmare for the district and then they are also reported for their licensure and in that process, you know, the profession has 
has also suffered because there's this loss of trust and this loss of the dignity and integrity of this very important profession. Absolutely agree with you with the dignity and professionalism of this profession because it is so crucial. One of the things that I've been tracking though, and I'd love your comments on, is the sense that some of these social mores are shifting a little bit. You know, just by way of example, the fact that we now have 20 years of people taking selfies of themselves. In your opinion, do you think that that would change the way licensing boards or even school districts viewed something like that? So I, I do think it, it, it changes, and as things become more socially acceptable, um, there are things that are less likely to raise concerns for parents, which means they're less likely to be reported to the districts and less likely to be reported to us. But yes, that is something I know that our attorneys deal with in hearing of, well, it's not really affecting the dignity and integrity of the profession because this is something that is socially acceptable. This is how I feel and how I express myself. Um, some cases, yeah, you can see that argument. Some no, there are still this lines. Is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is clearly not acceptable in, in any circles. So. Yeah, well, we'll leave the audience to draw their own lines yeah. with respect to that. Which they're going to anyway, by well, the way. Well, of course. But yeah. there is one topic I think that is worth touching on because it, it has become, I think, a real national problem. And as an attorney, a board attorney, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, which is the, the intensity with which some teachers are reported or hounded on social media or challenged for social media posts that may suggest, for instance, a particular political point of view or an activism point of view or something like that. And I guess my question would be twofold, which is how big a problem is this in Kentucky? And then secondly, how is the board responding to basically charges of moral turpitude? Because, for instance, someone goes to a gay pride event. Mm -hmm. um, so I do always need to preface everything with these are my opinions. I can't, you know, fully speak for my board themselves. Um, but it is, our board is made up of 17 members that represent different areas of the education community. We have nine teacher representatives, two administrators, three higher ed representatives, a school board member, and then two ex officio, which is from our education cabinet and then the Council on Post-Secondary Education in Kentucky. So you've got people from kind of all, all parts of the education community reviewing these cases when they come before them. Um, I do have a case that is coming to mind and it was when I was in my previous role with dealing with those educator misconduct cases where a teacher, she had a, a very interesting sense of humor. Um, it, it was a little dark, um, and she would post things on her social media page, um, Facebook specifically, kind of venting, um, making comments about her administration and also her students, um, which was very problematic There's for, a line. <laughs> for multiple reasons. But she thought she knew all of her friends um, and that she had all of her privacy settings set, and somebody followed her. I mean, this was months of they just screenshotted. screenshotted, saved everything, and then they reported her to her school board, 
her administration, the local news. Um, luckily, the news didn't pick it up. They, they kind of let that one go. Um, but she did have to sit with her superintendent, who was much older than her. I mean, older than her father. Um, and she is having him read back to her all of these somewhat crass jokes, um, things, you know, comparing her administration to Nazis at one point. Um, and just, wow. I, I mean, I can assume just the most uncomfortable conversation so you, you've had to deal with. So failing the test of would you like your grandmother to read this? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, exactly. And so. So let me ask you a question, though. Do you think she really was uncomfortable about that? I mean, she's been posting this for months. So so is is the person really uncomfortable when they're confronted or are they stalwart in their defense of themselves saying this is totally appropriate for me to do? And I think it happens both ways. I think in this case, though, it was definitely a, an uncomfortable situation. Of These were things that she, probably similar to the babysitter, she was not going to act this way to her administrators or um, you know, to her superintendent. And, of course, there are other things that she posted on Facebook during that time that were fine and, and normal, but that's not what people take yeah. screenshots of and, and stream to you. <laughs> right. That's very true. So, but yeah. in, in our dealing with those cases, um, if it's not something where they're looking at using social media to really get into those boundary violations of, of trying to start an inappropriate relationship with a student, our board really looks at how they can help the educator, um, you know, wanting to be able to remediate. And sometimes, yes, that it does involve a suspension or... Um, but getting into training and maybe a probation to show that you're taking the training and you're taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a good place to end. We want to help people be better. And a lot of times consequences need to be in place to give separation and time for our all parties to heal from that. Um, but Cassie, thank you for being part of our show today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having this me. This was really a nice conversation. Cassie. It was. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.